Richard Epstein is the inaugural Lawrence A. Tisch Professor at NYU School of Law. He has served as the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution since 2000. His newest book, The Dubious Morality of the Modern Administrative State, was published by the Manhattan Institute in November 2019. Today, he will discuss the impact of COVID-19 on higher education and the questionable assumptions that have been drawn from many COVID-19 models. Let's listen in. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, I think one of the ways to start to begin is to say that the situation with respect to COVID-19 is the second kind of epidemic that I've had to deal with when I was a lawyer. Uh, Back in the early 1980s, I did a great deal of work through the Center on Clinical Medical Ethics at the University of Chicago and elsewhere, trying to figure out the various kinds of patterns associated with AIDS. Uh, The big difference between AIDS on the one hand and, of course, COVID-19 on the other is one disease that's infectious and the other is contagious. And by that, what we mean is the latter diseases can uh, be transmitted airborne, which makes them much more complicated uh, than the diseases that have to be transferred only by sexual contact on the one hand or blood interchanges on the other. Uh, Clearly, much greater kinds of restrictions are going to be needed in the second case than they are in the first. Uh, The question, though, is how serious is the charge and how not? Um, I got into this thing uh, Uh, quite accidentally, I suppose. Uh, I was doing some work on the problem, and there was a story that was published in the New York Times by Nicholas Kristof, in which they basically produced a model, a logistical model, which indicated that there would be, unless some interventions left unspecified were taken, of about at least 1 million people as of July 15th of the year. And if you did some kind of interventions, it would be uh, perhaps reduced to half. The curve itself was shaped in a very strange way. It was a very short, a very low, slow rise, and then this huge peak, and then this huge decline again. It looked like a normal distribution, uh, but it was not. This is not a probability distribution. This is the kind of frequency of cases. And they had a postulate of 10 million cases um, active at the peak of this thing in early July. I took one look at that model, having done various kinds of works on this, and I said to it, it cannot be correct. Uh, And the reason it cannot be correct is that what happens is the model seemed to propose that if there were no formal interventions, there would be no adaptations, either by the way in which the virus behaved on the one hand or by the way in which the people had behaved on the other. Uh, The obvious point, which I think is one uh, that uh, clearly is borne out, is that even if you had simply announced this kind of condition and done nothing whatsoever by government in order to change the ways in which people behave, that is, no legal restriction, there would have been massive alterations in the kinds of behaviors that had happened. Uh, Living as many times on the Upper West Side of New York, one of the things that's most characteristic about this virus is the high level of self-quarantine, even to points which I regarded as utterly unwarranted by the evidence, although for some people who have comorbidities or other kinds of situations, it's clearly the rational source of action. And so what happens is you will start to see this kind of movement on the individual side, and that's going to change the uh, frequency of the spread. It's going to mean that you're not going to have this very, very long latent period followed by the boom. What's going to happen is that uh, the situation is going to be gotten under control sooner rather than later. There will still be some kind of a latent phase. We never know quite how large it was going to be. And in the latent phase, the adaptations don't take place. So you get the curve going upwards. And then once these things are known, there are adaptations which slow the thing down. These are called logistical models. They're 
uh, basically partial differential equations, which sort of have a geometric force pushing you up, and then you have the slow resistance pushing you in the opposite direction. And I came to the conclusion that uh, this was going to look much more like the kinds of situations that you had um, with earlier flus and would, in fact, be less serious than the one associated with the Spanish flu of uh, 1918, 1919, because in those cases, there were huge what they call cytokine reactions, which meant that people in the prime of life had their lungs flooded because they had an overgenerous immune response. And so if you actually looked at the tables for deaths in that period, uh, there's a large number of them attributable to pneumonia and burnt out lungs, as well as to the virus itself. I then made the stupidest mistake in my entire academic career um, by putting a number to this, which I had no reason to do. And the numbers were wildly low at 500. It was completely stupid. Uh, but if you took away the number and looked at the chart, essentially the position that I took then and I take now is that uh, all of the standard models had over-exaggerated this stuff by at least an order of magnitude. So, for example, when they decided to close down Illinois, uh, the prediction was without the close down, there'd be tens of thousands of deaths, not singular 10, but many, many more. Those numbers are very, very high. It turns out when you give very, very high numbers, you take very extreme precaution. And it turns out that the economic consequences associated with this were extremely severe. Uh, we're still trying to work our way out of them. Every university that I've been involved with is now in major economic and financial stress, and there's no separate in the short term that will be able to do it. The other point that I wanted to make is that if you're starting to talk about planning, uh, there is the standard Hayekian trade-off as to whether or not centralized planning is going to be required, given all the externalities that are involved, or whether or not localized responses, decentralized, are going to be able to capture better the kinds of information that you need in order to make the particular responses in question. One of the reasons why every model that was produced after about April 1st went wrong is that they all assumed that the kinds of policies that were going to be imposed by government would essentially reduce the spread. In fact, the single most important policy imposed by many governments, by New York, by Pennsylvania, by Michigan, and by New Jersey, was the decision to say that we are going to take people who tested COVID positive and move them into nursing homes without adequate precaution. So that about the 110,000 people who've been died up to this date, probably close to a quarter of them have been died, have, have died under these kinds of circumstances, so that those traditional models that things would be attenuated were wrong. If you could put those things aside, and it's a big if, it shows you something about the dangers of government, but the rest of the information is, I think, more or less in conformity with the positions that I had taken. Uh, we have discovered, perhaps somewhat to our surprise, but I had predicted this, uh, that the virus seems to be more attenuated. The viral load associated with any particular volume of sputum or cough or whatever it is, is down. And it also seems that the viruses are getting weaker and that the rate of transmission is getting slower. And so that what's happened now is the question is just how fast you start to open up, given the risk of going too fast and too slow. I think that if you avoid the kinds of mistakes that you make with respect to the nursing home, the normal pattern of attenuation will continue to take place and that we should be fine to open up pretty much just about everything, except perhaps for large events and closed uh, uh, environments. Uh, uh, open air events, I think, are much less dangerous. Uh, going to the beach is not particularly dangerous. When the mayor of Chicago decided to close down the public parks because people were overusing them, that's probably a health deficit rather than not. So the point that I would leave you with is that you can't look at the question of control 
as though it's going to be something which always is going to be a positive. What one has to remember is these are highly centralized systems. In this particular case, uh, they are not only centralized in a government, but in a single person. There's no legislative input in these things. And in fact, the governors are quite happy to say, I will declare one 30-day emergency after another so as to continue my power. These are very flawed individuals. They have no particular knowledge of what's going on. And I think in the end, it's not just the economic stuff that has been a disaster, but I think also it has made it more difficult to get the health cure going on. So I regard this as a major sort of policy failure in the United States. I think things are slowly losing up, but I'm very worried about people who say that what you can't do is open things up until you get reliable tests or reliable vaccines. Those things may never come. And in the interim, uh, the medical benefits that you get from a further quarantine or lockdown are relatively modest, and the economic dislocations, including other kinds of health losses, are greater. I'm glad to see things are opening up at this particular point in time and would urge people to move ahead with all deliberate speed, uh, uh, maybe the only exception being large crowds and closed alternatives. So that's the basic pitch, and I'm always happy to take questions. So I'm going to start with the first uh... First question, if you, if, if you were Vice President Pence and advising President Trump, uh, what, what would you advise him to have done differently uh, in, uh, in his leadership on this? Oh my God. I mean, the first thing that the, the president needs to do is to basically disconnect his tweeting machine. Um, nothing that he says is of a positive benefit whatsoever. And in fact, one of the things that I found so distressing about all of this stuff is I have nothing to do with the Trump administration on this issue. I have worked on other projects with other Trump officials far below the presidential rank who have been exceptionally able. They're very strong people in the Trump administration. Uh, but the tweets, in effect, make it impossible for anybody who shares his basic predisposition that less government might be better under these circumstances uh, to speak so effectively because you're always going to be in his very, very large shadow. And uh, this, in fact, had a lot of impact upon myself. I, I put out my proposals. Somebody uh, wrote in the Washington Post that they were being considered by the current administration, and that meant that it was open season on Richard Epstein uh, precisely because of the affiliation that was forced upon it by the Trump people. Uh, so he has to do that. In terms of the kind of leadership that he did on the actual day-to-day -day stuff, the Pence team seems to have been pretty effective. There's a very nice piece by Rich Lowry trying to say that uh, the administration and the way in which it tried to allocate the uh, mask and the ventilators at a time when they were thought to be in very, very high demand was designed to make sure that they would be uniformly spread out and to prevent hoarding at the state level where these things would go unused. And they, I have not seen any particular substantive criticism of the Pence uh, U-cases, commands, and so forth that have done it. What is ironic about all of this, of course, is that um, uh, the Trump administration is now being charged for most of the economic dislocations, even though it is seated, uh, not correctly, by the way, that on constitutional grounds, uh, that it has no particular power that this thing lies in the states. Let me mention what the irony is. I think it was Bill Galston who's here who may have written a column, if I'm not mistaken, in the Wall here. Street Journal. Bill, did you not, um, about the uh, the commerce power? 
citing Gibbons and Ogden? Well, Gibbons and Ogden has been overruled for the past 80 years, and there's no question whatsoever that anything that affects interstate commerce is subject to uh, control. The issue is not whether the president can do it unilaterally. The answer to that question, in my view, is no, he cannot. He has to derive his powers from Congress. But if the Congress decided, not likely with Ms. Pelosi in charge of the House of Representatives, that it wanted to have national control over the entire process and preempt the state laws, that would be perfectly constitutional under every known doctrine since the New Deal. I might add, Bill, this is by way of irony, is I'm one of the few defenders of Gibbons and Ogden and one of the few attackers of, uh, of the situation in Wickard and Filburn and similar cases. But under the current law, the Congress could, in fact, take this over. Do I think it would have done a better job? My guess is probably not, uh, mainly because I think there's many pathologies that could exist at the federal level. But if you start looking at the individual states, uh, the thing that is most conspicuous about it is that the worst records are in the most progressive states. Um, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and so forth have had very powerful interventions. Rick DeSantis, or Ron DeSantis rather, the guy from Florida, his numbers are much better, many, many lower rates, because I think he did the right thing, which is you try to separate those people who are vulnerable from the larger crowd. You don't try and regulate the larger crowd in the effort to try to help the vulnerable. And that, that shift in emphasis seems to me to be absolutely kind of critical. So, I mean, I'm not a fan of the president. To be perfectly blunt about it, I called for his resignation publicly as early as uh, January of 2017. And this is not because I disagree with all his policies. I'm not a progressive. I'm a classical liberal. It's just that I, you can't figure out how to get out from underneath his shadow when he starts to talk. Uh, you're literally swallowed and swamped by the man. And even if you have a decent point, it's always going to be tied to him. Though, And the New Yorker savaged me when uh, Paul Krugman savaged me. It's always because I'm a Trump guy, a conservative. Well, you know, it turns out I think there are other ways to look at this. And what you have to do, in effect, is to try to follow this. As I've said, as it turns out from very many years, I've been fairly closely involved on both clinical medical ethics programs and have done a lot of work on evolutionary biology and so forth. Uh, one of the things that I think is sad about this, and I'll say it, is that I think most medical people do not know the kinds of things you need to know in order to handle this stuff. Uh, they are very good at treatment and diagnosis of individual cases. They don't know very much about how you organize systems of public regulation. That's the business that I've been in for over 50 years. And I teach a large number of these students, and I'm always amazed that they have the wrong set of tools for dealing with this, whether you're talking about the FDA, talking about Obamacare, talking about organ transplant, you name it. Uh, physicians, in effect, don't know enough about contractual and regulatory mechanisms uh, to be pretty accurate. Uh, what you do is you have to take their statements of various kinds of medical propositions as more or less true. But the social implications that you have to derive from them, I think, are often quite different from the ones that they put forward. So that would be my answer to your question. Okay. Uh, question from uh, uh, Neil Modell. Thank you for pre uh, Professor Epstein. And uh, I think Mr. Tisch uh, asked part of my question. Uh, so I am a conservative, and I would agree that if they took his Twitter feed away, we would be much better uh, if he would read the documents that his, his advisors prepare and not go off script, we would be better. Yes. My question to you is, in hindsight, uh, and again, it's always 2020, uh, as evidenced by, by the World Health Organization and Dr. Fauci changing their tune seemingly daily. 
is would you suggest that shutting down the entire country was an error? And yeah. in, in, in regard to that, that the cure and will be far worse than the disease? That's the position that I'm taking. Look, I mean, uh, you, you have to sort of understand that the standard rules say every time there's a decrease in wealth, particularly for people who have limited amounts, it results in an increase in mortality risk, health risks, and everything else. Um, I did some work on this in the 1930s, for example, and you could show pretty convincingly, I don't mean you, I don't mean you or me, I mean professional uh, calmness. Uh, you started to put price supports on the milk, but it, it resulted in a deterioration of health in inner cities. Uh, because it turned out the budgets didn't go as far and the amount of dietary suffering was fairly large. And so you always have to take into account the fact that these kinds of restrictions are going to have very heavy impact. Now, for people with relatively high wealth, <coughs> they're going to be less than others. But if you're starting to talk about people who are living from paycheck to paycheck and you take the paycheck away, um, this is going to have very deleterious kinds of consequences. It turns out that folks like us are you know, we can adapt 70, 80% to online stuff. As a lawyer, it's a pain in the neck not to be able to meet with clients or with my students and so forth. But I can continue to write, teach, and all the rest of that. Somebody who's a janitor trying to clean out a building which he's not allowed to enter doesn't have these kinds of options. Uh, I very strongly oppose, <coughs> not because I'm, I'm trying to be high-hearted, but essentially, when you try to solve this problem by transfer payments, which is the modern situation, what you do is you're basically imposing a tax on one group of individuals to make payments to others. And the payments here are not reflecting any productivity kinds of gains. And so what happens <laughs> is you could play this trick once. Maybe you could play this trick twice. But what you cannot do is to play this trick more time. So you're running a $3 trillion debt deficit. You're going to either have to fund it by higher taxes on a lower productivity, have to borrow income or have to inflate the currency. And we have no idea which of these things that we really want to do. Uh, so what you really wanted to do is to let people kind of taper down themselves. There is no question that if you started to look, for example, at something of restaurant reservations as of March 10th, uh, 2020, they were down 70% because people were themselves very afraid of what was going to happen. So there's gonna be a lot of moderation that is starting to take place. The difference is when you have a government doing it, uh, you then have Mr. Cuomo sitting there saying, well, I'm going to change my mind when I decide to change my mind. And then he says, whoops, I'm not going to let you open tomorrow. I'm going to make it for another day. And all of these kinds of things make it impossible for people to plan. One of the things that we know, for example, just take a simple instance about summer camps. Do you open them up or do you not open them up? These are children. They're open air environments. Uh, the counselors turn out to be young. Uh, you can say, look, don't go be a summer camp counselor when you're 72 years old. It's not the place for you to be. Most of the expenses you have to incur are expenses that you have to incur before the camp even opens. If you basically don't know whether you could open it or not, you can't incur the expenses. So you then have to shut all these operations down. Children's a disadvantage. It's jobs are lost under one circumstance after another. And time after time, in the state of Michigan, uh, the governor, you know, she could rail against racism and so forth, but she wouldn't even let empty houses be shown by a broker. Now, how do I know that? Because I have an empty house and the broker could not show it during the period in Michigan was this was in effect. They are completely unaccountable. It also, I mean, it gets depressing in the following sense. When I was in New York, I'd look on Columbus Circle and there was this high sign, you know, neon sign, and a huge amount of the time it was rented by uh, Governor Cuomo projecting his prison 
picture showing us how much he was doing to save all New Yorkers. It's a little bit like Chairman Mao putting himself under a poster. Uh, there was absolutely no check that anybody exerted on anything that any of these people did. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Dr. Fauci, um, I don't regard him as an expert in epidemiology. I don't regard the head of the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Chicago as an expert in epidemiology in terms of the sort of systematic evaluation. And so uh, these statements are really very strange. He's wrong to hold everything up to vaccine. Uh, he spoke too quickly with respect to the problem of Rendisphere. He's not going to be able to do the stuff that you want, I think, in the short run. Uh, probably he's wrong on HCQ. And this is a classic illustration. If you use decentralized information to figure out whether these treatments work, it beats the FDA. It even beats standard gold medal clinical trials, because in order to run a clinical trial, you have to run it absolutely the same for everybody over the entire life of the trial. Very difficult to enroll people in these trials so that you get a control arm and a non-control arm, and you can vary in the middle if it turns out you've made some kind of mistake. If you use the method which is used for off-label drugs, Namely, some guy says, I'm going to do this. Somebody says, well, I'm going to do that. And then what they do is they form voluntary networks. And what happens is all the information goes there. And nobody but nobody relies on FDA warnings today to figure out what the appropriate standard of care is. In fact, it is medical negligence to rely on the FDA warnings when there's better warnings that are generated through off-label uses, which constitute for cancer drugs, for example, 70 to 80% of the use in some cases. Generally, it's about 20%. And so this whole kind of, uh, how do we say, the martial law, this uh, marginal line mentality uh, of the FDA and of Fauci, he is a big government rigid guy. He simply does not know how to let somebody else express an opinion and so forth. And some of these guys are crackpots. I don't doubt that. But if you go and see the way in which this information is included, it gets updated much more rapidly, incrementally. And I, for one, thought that custom is a very powerful way in which to organize fields, unless there's some systematic negative externality on people who do not participate in the cultures. And that's why off-label uses have been so successful. Well, that's what you need more of in this world. And that's not what you get uh, from a governor. That's not what you get from somebody who runs a, a federal organization. Um, I've spent a lot of time talking to people in the FDA, including people like Scott Gottlieb. They are essentially all people who believe that there should be an army and they should be the general. And my view is there should be no army and no generals. And what you do is you have a lot of crazy random man scuffering around there. But out of that constant interaction, you will get better information more quickly than you will with these stylized double-blind studies that take forever to complete. And this is particularly true when you're starting to deal with viruses, because another element in the conversation today is my guess is a large number of people who died in March because you didn't know what to do in terms of treating them would survive if they had the same condition today because the sort of bedside evolution that has taken place in this field in treatment and so forth would make a marked difference in success. And if you start having that and more confidence in your medications on the cure side, uh, then the disease has to be downgraded from being really fatal to being something less than really fatal. And that's just another argument to open things up. Uh, but one of the things that's so utterly striking about this, Neil, is that if you look all people start to agree that the risks are clearly down. And then you ask yourself, well, do we need six feet uh, distancing today like you might have needed it in March? Well, I'm not even sure you needed it in March. There was zero studies to explain why it's happening. But what's happened is people have not made any adjustments from the government in virtue of the fact 
that the uh, situation on the ground has changed as radically as it has. So I'll stop there. Okay, uh, let me give you the order. Um, Robert Zedek, then uh, uh, Doug Scribner, and then Andy Gottesman. Robert? Hi, good afternoon, oh. Richard. How, how are you, my dear friend? Um, Richard, uh, I'd like you to address from a legal slash constitutional perspective, as well as a medical perspective, one highly unusual aspect of this whole experience, which is the quarantining, the, the locking down of healthy people as opposed to the sick people. That probably has never happened before, has never even been tried before, and there's been a lot written, but for the benefit of this group, speak briefly from a legal slash constitutional standpoint, as well as from an epidemiological standpoint, that well, practice. Well, let's start with the legal stuff, which is extremely vexing. What happens is uh, there is a very long-standing, very well-established doctrine uh, which says that all private property rights are put in suspension in the event that there's some kind of natural emergency or capacity or, 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 or tragedy. And so it's often said that these emergencies essentially result in the suspension of constitutional rights or property rights. This goes back to my favorite subject, Roman law. There's nothing novel about this. But what has changed is the definition of what counts as an emergency. And so it used to be there was a flood, there was an earthquake, there was even a short-term plague and so on. Uh, what happens today is uh, we don't have anything of that level of severity. You have a serious illness. It's got some degree of externality. And uh, what happens is you now are going to give the same degree of discretion for something which poses a much lower level of peril uh, than the things that traditionally happen. The statutes as they're worded essentially give the power to the governor typically uh, to last for a period of 30 days without legislative consultation. And there's no question, and I wrote about this in early March, uh, that generally speaking, you would not be able, even under these circumstances, uh, to be able to attack the quarantines as being beyond the police power of the state. Uh, but what happens is uh, 30 days come and go, and then the governor says, well, there's another emergency. Well, at this point now, you really are on very thin ground. Um, it, you have had the same emergency you had before. Uh, the original 30-day period was to allow you to organize legislative and administrative responses so you no longer had to act unilaterally. If you could simply say that one emergency becomes two emergencies, becomes three emergencies, becomes more emergencies, none of that stuff is going to be there. And so what you do is you result in the very strong aggregation of power. So that's the first thing. Then what you start to say is, well, um, is this going to be something in terms of its scope? Uh, there is no question that quarantines, to some extent, have always been subject to at least to some sense of restriction that they have some collateral purpose. So there's a very famous case called Juho against the city of San Francisco, a famous immediately, in 1900, in which they did is they had a quarantine of the Chinese quarter uh, because of some disease in um, San Francisco. This was a most unusual quarantine. It was a quarantine which said that Chinese citizens or aliens in that community could not leave, but white people could come and go at their pleasure. And so what the judge did is he struck it down. He says, this is not a quarantine. Uh, this is a trade restriction. And it's a trade restriction which is done on racial and ethnic grounds. It's going to be out. Now, I don't think you can make that particular claim in this particular case that there's been any conscious bias on the part of government uh, to target one or another group in terms of the way in which the system has worked. Uh, but there is the weaker question, but a sensible question. What about overbreath? 
And there's no question that I have taken the position, which I think you're implying to, is that the thing you want to do is to isolate people who are infected and isolate people who are vulnerable and leave the 98% of the rest of the population out of it, knowing that they too can make various kinds of adaptations. The reason this has not been an argument which is knocked down is that you can show that any person who falls in that large 98% group is somebody who's capable of being infected by those who are sick and then transferring it to those people who turn out to be vulnerable. So the question then is uh, just how much overbreath you're going to have, how much underbreath. I spend a lot of time talking to judges and so forth, and, and I will make the following almost categorical statement about the way in which behave. Most of the judges with whom I tend to circulate have been libertarian in terms of their orientation. And what happens is uh, you start to put from them the kinds of things that you think are really mistaken. And they say, I absolutely agree, but what is it that courts can do about anything? So essentially, even with cases where you don't have serious public health issues, like, for example, the minimum wage law, all of these people believe that it's a limitation, unjustified on freedom of contract. None of them want to strike it down. So if what you see is a judicial temperament, right, which is not going to uh, basically protect economic liberties when there are no issues at, health issues at stake, you can bet your bottom dollar that these same people will not move a finger when it comes to deal with economic liberties uh, when there is a health issue involved. And in fact, uh, all of this movement essentially died when there was the case that came before the Supreme Court as to whether or not religious organizations could be singled out for certain kinds of restrictions on the way in which they met, right? And uh, what happened is there were four conservative judges who essentially said, we see in the differential treatment uh, the source of a free exercise claim. Justice Roberts wrote on the opposite direction. The liberals, who are always going to be pretty strong on this, uh, didn't say a word. Five, four, this thing was thrown out. And that ended effectively the constitutional uh, type of restriction. Uh, what I find so difficult is that when you start talking about this in the political arena, uh, the, the rhetoric that one sees now is essentially non-forcifiable. So we are told constantly, well, there may be a second wave that can come up. That was also true in 1918. True in 1918 twice because there were three waves because of the mutations that had taken place, of which the second was the most serious. In this case, this thing is not serious enough the first time around uh, to produce an aftershock that's going to be like that. But if your argument is, no matter what the probability of an adverse event is, the same sort of precautions stay in place, uh, then you're not doing any kind of cost-benefit analysis. If you're saying the benefit is greater than zero, damn the cost, we'll do it. And, you know, that sounds pretty extreme. I will now quote Mr. Cuomo. And he basically invokes his father. And what he announces, I've always been told that I have to put health first and economics second. And therefore, I cannot take any kinds of chances. He's not in favor of gradual releases, except in principle. And he slows everything down under these circumstances and then goes off to Washington saying, my state is bankrupt. You have to give me more money by running the federal presses in my favor. Uh, so if you get that kind of stuff, it's there. The world is filled with trade-offs. The world is filled with error. And my view about this is from the beginning, uh, we overestimated the dangers associated with the coronavirus and underestimated the dangers associated uh, with the intervention, that both of these things count as externalities. Throwing 40 million people out of work, denying them, quote unquote, a collective medicine is really a very, very standard problem. And I think, in effect, uh, that once you get courts and even commentators saying, gee, it's too hard for us to figure it out, leave it to the governor. 
uh, then it's the end of individual liberty. So the real institutional failure was that you never, ever, ever had a debate after the initial movement as to why this was going on. Uh, everyone would tell you, we have spoken to our executives and our experts, and they say we should do this. Somebody actually filed a FOIA request in California to get information. And what they answered is we have no papers that are relevant to this particular situation. And so what we do now is we have unaccountable government. I think that excess of executive power is something that the judiciary ought to tackle. Uh, but as a predictive matter, uh, there is not a chance in hell uh, that these courts will do it. I speak to many, many conservative judges, and they all believe in economic liberties on the one hand and judicial restraint on the other. And it's the latter thing rather than the former thing which dictates their response in this particular period. Doug? Doug Scribner. Uh, Professor, thank you uh, for, for your commentary. My question involves legal education and the regulation of the, pra uh, the practice of law. So pre-COVID, you had the ABA Commission on the Future of Legal Education. The ABA had approved online JD programs, Syracuse and other places. Mm -hmm. Lots of questions about the bar exam as an effective means of you know, admission. Um, you know, loose, some people talking about loosening the regulation of the practice of law. So the, does a pandemic accelerate those trends, redirect them, or do we just go back to where we were post-COVID? Oh, no. I mean, education will never be the same. Practice of law will never be the same. Already the New York State Bar Commission has basically authorized unlong the Zoom education that you've given for the complete degrees is sufficient. Um, and essentially, you can now take the bar examination on the strength of those kinds of things because they know to do otherwise is essentially to basically torture the profession. It is already the case that most recent graduates have found that their start dates have been delayed, uh, that their payments, um, uh, sometimes their salaries have been reduced, sometimes they've been let off. I can assure you in my own case, uh, universities are already making and instituting pay cuts, which will hit us in everything that we start to do. Uh, you can't go back on this. The question is, can you actually open these things up again? And that's where uh, the restrictions on social spacing are so critical. You take a room which normally holds, and this, this is a real number, okay? Uh, I teach a seminar in a room which we talk about classical liberal theory, and uh, generally you get 22 to 24 students in the room. Somebody comes along from I don't know whom, and they say this room could only hold five people. Well, that means we can't run our particular seminars, right? So then you have to do it half Zoom and half in person. That doesn't work either, so you're there. Um, I think unless they relax these things, it will be the end of traditional universities. And it'll be a very, very long time before they recover. And you cannot, let's be perfectly blunt about this, charge full tuition to students who are sitting in their living rooms, listening to a series of lectures, even when they can talk on Zoom, as if they're immersed in a culture, um, which is what first year, particularly of law school is, in which they have constant exposure to all sorts of people. So you're going to have to do it. My guess is, I know at least several students have told me they've been admitted. They're going to postpone this year because they don't want to Zoom first year. They're going to do it next year. Uh, you're going to have to make tuition adjustments, salary adjustments. You've got this huge capacity, right? Empty dormitories. I regard this as an unmitigated disaster and a completely unnecessary one. These are populations for which all of the spacing and masking situations should be just removed. 
you put Purell in the room, you turn the air conditioner on, you open up the windows under these circumstances. You tell people to basically bring napkins with them, put Purell in the hall, and you let these things go on. So I don't even think this is a close case. If you actually look at the populations, the only exception should be made for little old folks like me, in which you have faculty members who are over 60 or 65, may be given a pass from teaching. Uh, frankly, I would not be worried about this. Why? Because uh, thank God, in, in, in terms of the kinds of things that matter for this, uh, no known comorbidities completely changes the situation. And I'm confident that the other set of restrictions that you impose, uh, including those on myself, would be able to do it. So I, I regard essentially at this point the governor of this and other states is personally responsible for the near demise and perhaps fatal wounding of every serious academic institution. Other businesses like the resort industry and so forth the same. I mean, when I got on the plane to Chicago, this was an innocuous situation. One of the things I did is I looked around the airport, I listened in the plane, I didn't see one person sneezing or coughing the whole time. Um, and there were many people, by the way, who were in open rebellion, weren't wearing masks or what I call half masks. They put it over their mouth and not their nose. And, you know, and we're told that you have to quarantine for two weeks after you get off a plane. Uh, you're more dangerous in a thousand other situations, uh, depending what it is. So I think, in effect, uh, that, yes, um, we do have to open this thing up much more aggressively than we've done. Uh, the only events that I'm uneasy about are indoor events with large crowds. And, you know, that's not a trivial situation. You know, basketball may be in trouble. Uh, theater, music adventures, and so forth may be in trouble. Um, I would probably retract those restrictions in a couple of months anyhow. Um, the numbers are going down fairly rapidly rapidly, at least in the major cities. And I don't think that we're going to see a repeat of the major policy errors for all the reasons that I've said. Uh, so um, I'm very apprehensive about the, the future of this country. I'm not so sure we could get ourselves back again because I see the relaxation is never accompanied by the following sense by any of the government. You know the way your restaurant runs better than the way we do. You know your customers know this better than we do. We're going to tell you this is the way in which you have to run your outdoor counters and so forth. I regard that as central planning when the real epidemic is passed, which is far beyond, to quote Bob Zadig again, the sort of legitimate police powers of the state. Joel Myers? I, uh, well, I've heard uh, uh, probably 100 uh, presentations like this uh, over the last couple of months, and I have to say, uh, Professor, this is uh, one of the most fascinating and engaging ones well, I've you. seen, so uh, congratulations. I'm in the prediction business, so I have a... a oh, AccuWeather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so Professor, so um, the reduction that's occurred uh, in cases on is obviously partly result of the seasonality, the weather, uh, people opening their windows, being outside more. And I missed the first six or seven minutes of, of your talk, so you may have talked about that. But, uh. it, and, and, but what, if you look at what happened in 1917 to 19, uh, mm. the second wave uh, killed 10 times as many people as the first, and the third wave, twice as many as the first. But one-fifth of the second. What? But much less than the second. Oh, much less than the second. But the, you have to look at the seasonality of it. I'm sure you know it very well. Yes. You know, so late September, October, it, it came back with a vengeance. And particularly, uh, you know, it peaked uh, what, in December and then it dropped off again. Then you got another one. And then finally spring came and, and that was the end of the thing overall. So um, what do you think? Uh, 
uh, uh, by the way, I agree with your comment on central planning. We we have uh, the government, the Federal Reserve, they've picked winners and losers. They've supported the existing companies, whether they were going to go out of business or not. Uh, I mean, it's almost like capitalism has been killed by this thing. But anyway, I, I'd be interested in your opinion of the what you think uh, will happen when the fall comes. This is very scary. One of the things that might happen is we will be extremely slow in letting all of this stuff go because we're worried about what's going to come. And then by the time you get to October, there will be a deadly conflation between ordinary flu season on the one hand and this thing. And the question of which way we attribute various kinds of loss. Uh, to put the questions you drove in the most emphatic way, uh, you had about 80,000 deaths in the 2017-2018 year uh, attributed to the flu, by the way, with extremely wide variations because they didn't count the way they did then. Um, that's about the order of magnitude that COVID is done. Does this mean that every winter we shut down for six months? Well, nobody could possibly sustain that. One of the problems, by the way, that we have with the numbers is that March is still the end of flu season, i.e. traditional flu season. If you don't test people, you're not sure whether it's COVID or whether it's a traditional flu that is doing people in. That bias is going to push people up. Uh, when they started to change the numbers in the middle of this, putting probable in with confirmed, um, they didn't use a probability discount for the probable, count them as half. They just counted them as one. And this was all political. So I can see an absolute disaster coming up when they're going to have to say the two things are coming together, we're going to do it. And then at that point, every season you're going to have to shut down for six months because of flu. Uh, you can survive this. So uh, what you need to do at this point is uh, you have to change the sort of set of expectations. Uh, there are ways that you can cheaply do these things, but to recommend, as the governors and the mayors don't seem to understand, that trade-off is the nation of all stuff. That's what's wrong with Mr. Fauci. He has never worked in a world of uncertainty. What he does is he kind of looks at medical tests of one kind or another and doesn't care about anything that's not in his particular silo on the trade-off. I care about all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so if we do not open up in the fall and we get a recurrence of some flu-like thing from other courses, we may never be able to straighten this stuff out. That's why it's so important in the summer when the weather is most favorable for this stuff to put things back what happens is then you could actually get some information as to whether or not the dreaded recession will take place. Outdoor activities won't do it. But if we don't do that now, then when we go into the fall, we won't have information as to the way the world works without a lockdown. And we'll just continue this a little bit further. And frankly, there are people who can't do it. I mean, the problem about transfer payments is they always run out. The problem about minimum wage payments or minimum payments for unemployment is that they get abused. So you get in Oregon, a very strong union state, they furlough everybody once a week so they can claim unemployment benefits in addition to some kind of salary they get. Uh, the gaming of an unemployment system, we know to be the case. Uh, when we had the 99-week period, if you recall, under Obama, uh, the number of people who took advantage of that was really extremely large. The payments were very large. And people who could get viable alternatives would say, I'd rather get my unemployment benefits, uh, work around the house, put the roof on the thing, do a little bit of non-W-2 uh, non work and so forth. Uh, you have the same moral hazard here. And, and what happens is originally when you look at yourself, you have to say, you know, there's a little bit of larceny in all of us. And if you start to put a series of incentives out there, which make it better for you to avoid going back into the labor force uh, than to go back into the labor force, there's going to be somebody who's going to take advantage of it. And then most importantly, 
all of these programs, when somebody starts to take advantage of it, it starts as random individual events. But then the intermediaries get together, the various groups, the unions, the churches, uh, the patient guides or whatever it is, and they know how to game the system. One of the reasons, for example, why all the projections of cost under the Obamacare system were wrong is after you knew what the benefit structures were, you would organize a group complying with the hospital, and all of a sudden you just shovel patients into this particular program because you found a way in which to, as it were, uh, organize them. And it's extremely important to understand uh, that the information gaps can be overcome by these organizations, which are much easier to form in an age of this kind of communication. So I'm really very, very worried that if we don't untrack ourselves quickly enough, uh, we may spend all of next year worrying about exactly the same thing that we're doing now, where there's going to be no transfer payment system that's going to be sufficient to sustain what's going on. So we got uh, two, two more. We got uh, Bill Galston and then Joe Colinetta, and we'll wrap up. Okay. Looking forward, Bill. I am going to refrain from hijacking the meeting by arguing Gibbons and Wickard with you. Uh, I'm going to save that for another occasion, but there well, is another. I can we'll, assure the assembled company that there's another side of the case. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, I want to put a natural experiment on the table for your consideration. Is, sure. It's, it, it's, a, it's going on before our eyes. Uh, Sweden and Norway. Mm -hmm. uh, as of this afternoon, the death rate per capita in Sweden, which has adopted a policy that you're probably happier with than that of the mm -hmm. United States, uh, the death rate in Sweden is 10.5 times as high per capita as it is in Norway. That is a fact. And that's uh, 4,000 deaths, right? Uh, it's getting up to 5,000. Okay. Okay. Out of 10 million. Go ahead. Out of 10 million. Okay. And in Norway, the actual death total as of this minute is 239 on a mm -hmm. population of five, 5 million. Mm -hmm. Facts. Uh, second fact, uh, the Swedish economy is projected to decline at almost exactly the same rate as the Norwegian economy for 2020. Query, what's your interpretation of these facts? Look, I mean, that's a very fair question. First of all, one has to remember that the Swedish implementation of the program was not itself flawless. And early on, for example, what they did is they allowed rather large clogs, crowds to get together in dealing with these things. So, I mean, part of the increase that you see is, is otherwise. As for the rest of it, I really cannot say authoritatively, but I can say the following. Uh, the four to 5,000 number that you're seeing uh, there is certainly lower on a percentage basis than you have in places like New York. And in addition to that, I mean, when you start looking at it, compared to the original projections that were made uh, by the um, by the various models, the Ferguson model, they had this thing up to 90,000. So, I mean, they were off by a factor of 20 in doing this. Now, the question you then have to ask, is it worth the tenfold difference if you think there's no economic benefit? The answer would be, if I thought you were right about that in the United States, 
I would say if I don't have any economic loss and I have only a, a savings in life, but I can't believe that this is in fact going to be correct unless I know a great deal more about the way in which the Norwegians implemented their kind of policy and the Swedes implemented theirs. We do know in the United States, I could give you the same numbers, that you look at Florida and you look at New York, New York is a total catastrophe, Florida is not, uh, less decline, more improvement. So I think the answer is, you know, all of these comparisons, you really have to look much more closely at the detail. I agree with you. Um, and let me say this, that, uh, you know, suppose we were to say the following thing. If you ran something about much more thorough lockdown and you did it from March to middle of April, uh, that might have been very good. What I'm trying to do is to figure out where it is that the lines start to cross. And I don't know exactly enough particulars about those two things there. I did not say, and I would never say that there's absolutely no reason for public health interventions one way or another. And I did not want to say that the Swedes got it right. In fact, they may well have gotten it wrong, as I mentioned on at least some of these kinds of points. So I think the bottom line about this is that it would be silly for anybody to argue, and I would not argue, that when you see something with this looming up that you turn out to be totally indifferent. The question that you want to ask is about additional harms and losses. It may be the Swedes got it wrong and you want something else, but by the same token, I mean, I'll put the question to you. Do you still think New York ought to keep its restrictions in place today uh, when it turns out that the death rate that we see is wildly lower than it was? Or that they ever got anything right when they decided to commandeer hospital boats, set up the Javits Center, or working on numbers that were 10 times higher than the accurate situation. You can't get good policies when you get bad information under that. So I agree. I mean, I did not point to Sweden as perfect. I don't think any place is. Um, I would put the same point on the other side with respect to Florida. In the end, uh, what happens is you need more flexibility. Uh, it's not that you need no public response, but what I said is they went too heavy, too long with respect to it. In order to make a real comparison, I would want to know what the Norwegians did. I'd want to know something more about the densities of their population, uh, about the weather conditions that are associated with these things before you could do it. Uh, I think that it is no question that if you open up things, you're going to get some greater number of deaths than you would otherwise. You'd have to look to the population stuff. So let me ask you a question. What percentage of the people who died in Sweden were over 70? Look, the percentage of people who die in every country who are over 70 is very high, right? There's, well, there's no point is, yeah, and, and that's the point is that my view about it is that you wanted to target kinds of interventions to protect those individuals. If the Swedes didn't do that, they made a mistake. We did it exactly the opposite way. We managed to have people expose them unnecessarily in multiple states. So if you look at our numbers, you have, again, a quarter of the people who were killed were killed because they were forced into interaction with COVID-positive patients. That's what I'm attacking. I, I don't wish to defend Sweden as a model of perfection. Indeed, I didn't refer to it because I'm not sure to know enough about the way it worked. The Norwegian number strikes me as a, a, unusually low for a population of that size. Um, and I don't know exactly why it happens in that way. I would want to get experts in both countries to talk about it. I'm much more comfortable about talking about things that I know about and where I'm reasonably confident they got it wrong. I'm also, I think, going forward, I'm much more concerned about the question of what the trend is going to be because I think, in effect, that the liberalization is taking too slow taking too long, and the kinds of things that I mentioned before are likely to happen again. So um, I would never, ever 
put my faith in a system whose details I do not understand. I would want to learn from their mistakes just as I would want to learn from the mistakes of the of the Norwegians. Why the economies go down the same level? I can't give you a story. But uh, in this country, it seems to me that the states that close down more are going to suffer more than the ones that close down less. Who else is the question? No. Be continued. Yeah, no, always. Uh, yes, Professor. I hate to follow Bill Galston with the question, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Sure. Um, when you look at the local governments and state governments uh, make decrees that force the shutdown of businesses and uh, the restrictions of no more than 10 people to gather under the threat of punishment and imprisonment, and then those same local governments turn around and not only permit but encourage thousands of people to protest. From a legal point of view, do you think such discriminatory decrees like that is, are going to water down their ability to do that in the future? God, no. I mean, it, it's just astonishing the way in which all of the serious healthcare restrictions were put to one side and people started to rampage down the street. Uh, peaceful demonstrations, the majority, a minority of violent situations. I think it's extremely important to keep politics out of this and that if you're going to start to impose these things, you have to do it with respect to any and all kinds of considerations. I think if a religious group came back to Justice Roberts today after watching this thing, he might actually change his mind on that. But there is, I think, nothing whatsoever that you can do when you see a popular upsurge of that situation. I think at that point, you forget about the public health issues. I just don't see how you could constrain them without creating a riot, right? You now have to arrest not only looters, you have to arrest everybody. You're not going to do that. What you then do is you make sure that you protect the stores. And the other thing, which I found most painful, is the people who were required to abide by the curfews were the store owners who weren't allowed to protect their own businesses, as you recall, right? And yes, I, I think it, it, it's shocking that this should start to happen. I mean, look, this, it, the hour is late. There's going to be a lot of disagreement. Um, my view about the whole situation with George Floyd is not the conventional wisdom. I do not think it's a sign of institutional racism. I think the response is wildly disproportionate to what's going on. I think he's clearly guilty of a criminal offense, although I can tell you as a, you know, I'm not a practicing criminal defense lawyer, but I've taught this stuff a long time. Uh, you start changing an autopsy report in response to political pressures, and now you're going to try and get murder two instead of murder three, uh, you're going to be subject to fierce cross-examination and so forth. Um, it's amazing how powerful defense attorneys are because they are not constrained by any of the stuff which talk about reporters one way or another. And one of the things I fear is that this guy will be too effective, right? secure a relatively favorable verdict, and then we'll have the whole cycle going on again. I think in the United States, uh, I'm old enough to remember what it was like in 1954 when Brown v. Board came about, and I was in sixth grade, and what uh, Mr. Greenberg told us in PS 161. And to think that somehow or other uh, you get this kind of thing going on today is representative of what happened then is just crazy. When Orlando I said Wilson was made police commissioner in Chicago. Uh, the standard practice in treating people who committed crimes in the housing projects was to take them out to an empty lot and shoot, and then basically say that it was either a gang killing or something else. We're, we're, we're past all of that. And I think on the race question in general, one has to acknowledge the achievements before one starts to criticize the shortfall. Uh, we've come a very long way. And to try to basically 
suspend all public health situations because of this would be unwise. I would not have stopped the marches in any event. I would not have stopped any outdoor activities, as I've started to say, uh, under these circumstances. So it, it's it's just compounding. Uh, but I do think that you know the protection of innocence is important, and there is no way at this point that any compensation is going to be given to the businesses that were wrecked. Right? They're not going to get a dime out of all of this, or to the people whose lives were were shattered. So it's a it's a sad commentary. We live in very difficult times. I can assure you that being a conservative, classical liberal in an academic environment is not as easy now as it was ten years ago. There's always a presumption of illegitimacy that attaches to anything that you say or do. Professor Epstein believes Americans have largely been given a false choice between either entirely shutting down our economy or letting COVID-19 run rampant through the population. He believes there is a much wider array of outcomes dependent on variables we don't yet fully understand. But overall, he believes the country should have a bias toward trying to safely reopen as fast as possible. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest challenges. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.